You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. For you watching on our live stream, if you're not, though you're not here with us physically, you may be traveling or worse, you may be homesick, and if so, we're praying for your recovery. It's good to have you with us. Even if you're not physically here, you're a part of our community tonight. And I want to invite you right now to open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, then bring one with you. That's totally fine. There's a Bible that's there in the pew, and that is not only yours tonight. If you need a Bible, that's yours to take with you. And that's for you, or if you have someone in your life who needs one, take that as our gift tonight. Open up to Philippians, chapter 2. That's page 802 in that Pew Bible, and if you're using a phone or a tablet, you can use the YouVersion Bible app, and it will take you with those instructions right to our scripture this evening. Beloved, this is the night of the story. This is the night of the story. In one sense, it's a story so ordinary, it's told every day. It's a story so common It's been told about each one of us. While we might not ever think about it, the day we were born is a story told by those who love us. They tell of how we arrived into their lives. When babies are born, we just have to tell the story. And so we do the same tonight. We come together to share the story of the birth of a baby. One born of a woman like every child, and yet one born of God's Spirit as was no other child. For this is no ordinary story. It is the beginning of the greatest story ever told, what some call gospel, meaning good news, the greatest, the best news of all. Here at Grace over these last few weeks, we've been preparing to celebrate this story by way of a handful of Christmas carols that we typically sing around this time of year. Getting behind the music, as it were, and the lyrics Our hope has been to better appreciate what this story is really all about. And tonight, we're going to be looking at my favorite Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. How many of you, that's your favorite Christmas song? Raise your hand. Oh, come on! (laughs) This is worse than the last service. Man, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, people. Maybe you remember it as the closing song of a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's also the carol sung at the end of my favorite Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There you go. All right. Whoever you are that said that, I love you tonight. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written by Charles Wesley. And Charles, along with his brother John, ministered among the people of England in the 18th century. And they were the founders together of the Methodist church movement. Now, most of the people they served at that time were poverty-stricken and couldn't read or write. However, they could and did sing and memorize many songs. As a result, the Wesley brothers shared their faith by putting the story of the gospel to music. Collectively, they wrote over 10,000 songs in their lifetimes. Yeah, I know, right? 
Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was written in 1739, just a year after Charles Wesley experienced a profound spiritual reawakening in his faith. It was first published under the title, Hymn for Christmas Day. The final version of the song we all know would evolve over the span of the next two centuries. This beloved carol, if you're picturing it in your mind, if you're thinking of the words, this beloved carol begins its reflection upon the Christmas story not with the prophets, not with the angelic announcement to Mary, not with their journey to Bethlehem, but right in the middle of all the action, with a legion of angels so vast they cannot be counted as they fill the night sky of Bethlehem. The very first word of the song, you'll remember, hark, is an old English word. It means listen or pay attention. It directs our focus on the pronouncement of this great company of the heavenly host. For these herald angels come not just with the message of the birth of Jesus, they declare the significance of it as well. Glory to God in the highest. The child born in Bethlehem marks the fulfillment of the long-promised Savior of all humanity, the King of all creation. And not only do the words of these heralds inform These angels also, in the same words, call for a response from us. We are to give glory. We are to reflect to each other the weightiness, the magnitude of what this moment represents, of who has come to us. But do we really know? Do we fully understand who this child is? One of the reasons why I like Hark the Herald Angels Sing is that there are so many deep, abiding truths in this song that seek to answer this most important of questions. But the one that really struck me this season was this line from the third stanza. Perhaps you remember it. It goes like this. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. And this one line for me is the most stunning truth about Christmas. It builds off an equally astounding assertion made earlier in the second verse that goes something like this, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. In the flesh of this tiny, fragile infant is divinity, the eternal and everlasting God, the creator of all life, the one who is outside of time and therefore always has been and will always be The God who is perfect, complete, whole, has in Christ taken on our mortal flesh. Mild he lays his glory by. The God who gives us each breath we take, who is the architect of our anatomy, now becomes dependent upon our oxygen, subject to the confines of his design of our bodies, Where in the world did Charles Wesley get such a nonsensical idea from, such seeming delusions of grandeur about this child? He got it from perhaps one of the oldest Christmas songs ever, found in, of all places, the Bible, in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. You have it open in that Bible in front of you right now, and I'd like to share a sample of this ancient Christmas carol with you. If you're in Philippians chapter two, I'm gonna start reading in verse five. In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And once again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is quoting here from an early Christian hymn, get this, written before he wrote this letter to the Philippians. This ancient hymn expresses what people believed right from the beginning about this one named Jesus. And it makes the same two seemingly contradictory assertions that we find in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. First, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Before being born to Mary and Joseph, Paul tells us that Jesus existed as the Lord of all life. Everything that makes God, God, is true of Jesus, even as he is born to us. When we encounter Jesus, the true character of our creator is revealed because Jesus is God. And yet... Though Jesus is God, long ago, once upon a midnight clear in Bethlehem, Jesus, Paul tells us, set aside the advantages, the privileges of being in very nature divine and chose to enter into his creation and become one of us. This is extraordinary. If you know your Bible at all, if you're familiar with the biblical story at all, prior to Jesus' birth, God had only revealed himself in terrifying manners. God's presence was seen in a pillar of a cloud, a burning bush, an earthquake. When God dwelled with his people, his presence was centralized in the tabernacle or temple. Even there, priests had to construct multiple layers of separation and veils. But here at Christmas, mild he lays his glory by. God comes as the most approachable, vulnerable thing in the world. A baby. Jesus did not exalt himself or exploit his status in order to shield himself from difficulty or limitation. God in Christ became fully human. Without adding or subtracting from what it means to be God, the Creator visited his creation in person without adding or subtracting from what it means to be human. God laid his glory by and subjected himself to all that affects humankind. All that is that affects us. What we profess, what we celebrate tonight, raises questions. How can this be possible? How could this story be true? How do we explain it? And these are good questions to grapple with, and they will inevitably lead us to other questions, or maybe they'll just leave us wrapped up in skepticism. And if that's where you find yourself tonight, skeptical, I invite you to bring your questions once again to the story. 
And as you do, just be sure to ask the biggest question of them all. Not how, but why? Why? Why did God choose this? Why would the creator of the universe, who lives beyond time and space, choose in Christ to experience fatigue and battle the flu, to know loneliness and what it is to have a broken heart? Why did God do this? First, God did this. He made Christmas a reality for us because our creator loves us. Wesley in Hark the Herald Angels Sing tells us Jesus laid his glory by because Christ was pleased as man with men to dwell. God in Christ was willing to traverse the divide between heaven and earth to clothe himself in flesh all for the pleasure of dwelling with us, of being in our company. Among those who believe in a higher power, There are many representations of God as being either a distant, aloof deity or some sort of vengeful and sadistic divine being. Paul, however, in quoting this ancient carol, tells us what we learn about God as revealed through the coming of Christ is that our creator is humbly engaged with us. Now, humility may not be the first word that comes to mind when we think about how to describe God. But it is the one quality Paul insists stands out and is therefore essential to knowing who God is. God in Christ humbled himself to become like us. Jesus emptied himself of divine prerogative or privilege in being born in human likeness. Oftentimes, our understanding of being humble is thinking less of ourselves, right? That, you know, to be humble is somehow to put ourselves down, to think less of ourselves. But this is not at all what Paul is describing. Christ's humility results not from how God sees himself, but from how God sees us, you and me. Properly understood, humility does not result from how we see ourselves, but rather from how we see others. Being humble isn't about thinking less of yourself, It's about perceiving and honoring the value and worth of another. Therefore, God became flesh in Christ because God sees beauty, value, worth in us. Our creator sees a greatness in you and me, a potential and a possibility in us, in our humanity that God created to be realized We were created out of love, and out of love, our creator comes down to our level so that we would know our worth, our value, our unrealized potential. Because you see, in Jesus, we don't just see the reflection of who God is. We also are given a reflection of our true humanity the realization of our very best selves. Jesus' perfect and flawless life, untainted by corruption, dishonesty, or selfishness, offers us a glimpse of all we were meant to be, of all we can become 
in relationship to our creator. Is that so hard for us to believe? Isn't it harder to explain why it's so difficult for us to see the worth, the value, the potential in ourselves and in one another? Isn't it harder to understand why we seem to prefer to be less than we're capable of? Why we continue to choose bigotry and hatred, cruelty and condemnation instead of acceptance and equality, compassion and forgiveness. There is so much more to us than we choose to settle for. So much more we can experience together rather than at the expense of each other. This is what God sees. This is what God created us for. This is why God comes to us. Out of such love, desiring to enable us to become all we can be, God made Christmas a reality, secondly, to bring peace. Peace. The reason why we settle for less, the reason why whatever we gain often comes at the expense of others, and therefore the reason why there is no lasting peace for us is because we have chosen to live for ourselves rather than the way our creator designed for us to be. Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Isn't that the slogan of our days, our times? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Seems fair, sounds just. You do you and I'll be me and just leave everybody else alone. But try as we may to remain isolated from each other. Our lot in life is intimately connected. What I do or don't do affects you. And the same goes for you towards me. It doesn't sound like a big deal, you know, if every person just lives for him or herself. It doesn't sound like a big, big deal. But when every person lives for him or herself, somebody always gets hurt. Someone always pays the price. Apart from God, beloved, our success, our freedom, our happiness is always built on the back of someone else. When we abandon the source of the good, the true, and the beautiful, when we rebel against the intent and design of our creator, we are destined for destruction as humanity becomes its own worst enemy. We don't need to worry about God calling down fire and rain upon us because we end up cultivating enough chaos Enough exploitation and abuse, enough poverty and disease, enough violence, war, and genocide upon ourselves. A broken world knows all too well the pain, suffering, and tragedies that are etched into the fabric of humanity by our own hands. And if we're honest, God, our creator, would have a right to be offended a right to be offended by what we've done to each other, by what we're continuing to do to his creation. God would be completely just to judge us as guilty of crimes against our humanity, against this universe, and therefore pass sentence. And yet this is not the response of our creator. No, God in Christ 
mild he lays his glory by, coming not with a word of condemnation, but one of forgiveness, of peace. If we still sit here and doubt the reality of human sin, that we are the problem, then let let us ask ourselves this. How hard is it for us to lay aside our own glory? How hard is it for us to lay aside our own glory? I've wrestled with this question many times in preparing for this message, and let me tell you, it has not been pretty. I do not like to not receive credit for what I've done. I don't like to speak and have no one listen, so thank you, by the way. I don't like dressing up without receiving compliments. I want to be known. I want to be understood. I want to be appreciated. Sometimes I want it so bad, I'll heartlessly demand it from others. Glory is a tricky, touchy thing to surrender. We struggle with laying aside approval, pride, praise, recognition. On the wider stage of international politics, even our elected and appointed world leaders have become defiantly addicted to the pursuit of their own glory. Not laying it aside, but lashing out when it is not given. And yet at the core of this season of Christmas, is the exact opposite story. The Lord of the universe casts aside his glory and makes the first move. Even though we're in the wrong, God in Christ initiates the reconciliation we need to make things right. As Paul describes it here in Philippians, God goes even further than this taking on our mangled humanity, making Christmas a reality for us, to love us, to make peace with us, by serving us, serving us. And this act of service begins right from the start in the manger. From his first breath as a newly born babe all the way to the last gasp of his life as a human being, Jesus openly exposes himself to the fullness of the human condition. There is nothing we experience. No fear, no joy, no sorrow, no pain, no disappointment, no hope, no betrayal, no dream, no failure that God has not also experienced. God comes to us in Christ, Paul says, willing to serve humanity even to the point of death. Think about this for a moment. Any time a child is born, those gathered, and maybe you've had a child born recently in the life of your family or circle of friends, any time a child is born, those gathered, imagine, right? They wish, they invoke the best and brightest future, a long and full life for that child. However, in the coming of the birth of this child, We celebrate the coming of the one who is born not to live, but to die. At Christmas, Jesus came down not at the risk of his life. No, Jesus came down to us at the cost of his life. 
Paul reminds us that God in Christ lays his glory by for not just any death, but the humiliation and injustice of being wrongly executed as a criminal on a cross. And Wesley, through his poignant lyrics in the song, tells us why. When he says, Christ is born that man no more may die. My friends, when we live for ourselves, someone always gets hurt. And this hurt just keeps getting passed on to others through generations of discrimination, prejudice, and injustice. Passing the buck, however, never settles the debt. Wounds left ignored, untreated, fester and spread the infection of their pain. The evil that men do doesn't just go away. It piles up. And the pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When we live for ourselves, somebody always pays the price. But there is only one who can cover the tab to clean up the mess, to right all that is wrong in this world, to clear all the blood on humanity's ledger. And that one is our creator who comes down to willingly take responsibility for our chaos and in so doing offers us a second chance, the chance of a lifetime. Our success Our freedom, our happiness is always built on the back of someone else. But at Christmas, the only one who can bear that burden for all humanity, Jesus, comes with open arms, arms that will eventually be stretched out on beams of wood and declares, put it all on me. I'm good for it. I will make it right. Because Christmas is the dawn of a new day. Jesus is born to die, yes, but the Son who came down to us will one day rise. An old, rugged, forsaken cross menaces in the distance, but on that cross, God in Christ, in whom we live, move, and have our being, will swallow up death itself and open the door to us to an undiscovered country. Everlasting life. Jesus will rise from the ashes of our sin and in so doing will offer us the invitation to join him on the other side of that horizon. The end of the world as we know it, as all creation becomes new, including us. Wesley again expresses it beautifully in the song when he writes, Jesus is born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them Second birth. Christmas is the offer of the gift of living a life that is greater than our brokenness. A life where everything wrong is made right, where all that has been lost is found. A life beyond death, where pain and mourning are no more. This is the gift of Christmas. What God continues to hold out before us through the person of Jesus Christ But this gift of Christmas, like all gifts, is given to be received. It must be accepted. It must be opened. It must be exercised. Leaving the gift here, whether the next time we see you is next Sunday or maybe Easter, leaving the gift here means we don't value the gift of Christ all that much 
or we don't fully understand what we've been given. Jesus comes not to sit on a shelf or only to be taken out in case of emergency. Jesus places himself in our hands in order to be taken wherever we go. Jesus seeks to serve us by teaching and empowering us to live the full and abundant life we were always meant to experience. Jesus offers all of himself to us that we would reciprocate and offer all of ourselves to him through our love, our forgiveness, our service toward each other. It's the ultimate gift exchange, his life for ours. We come to Jesus with nothing, but if we receive Christ as he is, for who he is, and why he has come, we leave with everything. Don't settle for something. Don't settle for just anything this Christmas. Dare to believe. Choose to receive the gift of Christ, of life as it was meant to be, of life everlasting, a life of peace, faith, hope, and love through Jesus that can begin for you today. Because this is the night of the story. A story so familiar, most of us know it by heart. We sing about it. We decorate for it. We give presents to each other because of it. And yet, as well as we think we know this story, all of our attempts to explain it fall short. Not because they are wrong, but because they are always too small. Because tonight is the night of the story, not just of Christmas, but of the gospel. The good news of the self-giving God who has come this far and will go the distance to humbly encircle us in his love. For tonight is the night of the story of not just one birth, but of many. The day we are born is a story told by those who love us. And God so loved us, he told this story He spoke creation and Christmas into being so that we could be reborn from death to life, from self-declared war to divinely secured peace, from living on our own to being served and saved as the children of God. Tonight is the night of the story that calls into question all of our skepticism because this night invites us to trust that the love that makes us human, the love that is stronger than death, the love that is God, has come to us in Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas.